Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 247, and today's guest is Wayne Chang, co-founder and co-CEO of Digits. Serial entrepreneur, inventor, angel investor, film producer, commencement address speaker, world traveler. These are just some of the words that describe Wayne, and it all started at a young age when he discovered the world of technology. It was this world that would lead him down the path to building a very successful future. Wayne has a history of recognizing technology trends before they hit mainstream, like peer-to-peer file sharing. Yes, he was involved in companies like Napster and Dropbox, plus his own company, i2Hub. And then he moved on to things like developer tools with Crashlytics that was acquired by Twitter and is now owned by Google. His latest company is Digits, which is crafting the real-time finance engine for modern businesses. It is also the latest company he has started with his co-founder, Jeff Seibert, and the two of them have an amazing track record at building very successful companies together. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like what makes the foundation of a great co-founding duo, Wayne's background story and a walk down memory lane with various companies and his involvement in a groundbreaking shift in the tech industry, all the details on Crashlytics and the underserved market they were focused on and its rapid adoption by developers, why Jeff and Wayne are tackling the world of financial apps and a glimpse into the company's future, his experience as a film producer and winning an Emmy for the documentary Chasing Coral, why a recruiter should be one of the first hires at a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is very likely that you are just flying under the radar. The good news is that VentureFizz can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and culture. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include video, podcasting, employee profiles, and so much more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz.com to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Wayne. Wayne, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Oh, Wayne, I'm excited to talk to you because this is I feel like this is a podcast interview that should have been done a long time ago. Um, you know, we met years ago when you and Jeff were involved in the Boston Tech scene at see at different events. And, you know, we're going to talk about that company and that exit, which when I look back at Crashlytics and that acquisition, you know, that was like formation years of I thought like the tech scene in Boston and angel investing, but we're going to talk about that soon. I don't want to talk about that now, but you and Jeff have been together for a while building companies. And I thought to kick things off, it's like, what do you think makes a great founding pair? Like there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, building a company, it takes years and you got to have this good relationship with your co-founder. Otherwise the business probably will fail. So, so what advice would you have for others that are trying to, have that same camaraderie, that whole, you know, um, way to handle conflict and debate each other in a constructive manner. So what is it about you and Jeff that makes it, you know, a good duo? What, what's the special sauce there? Yeah. Um, it, it comes to this mutual respect and mutual trust. And I know that sounds very cliche, but in a co-founder relationship, it's really about the, 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 the vibrancy and the strength of that relationship. And relationships are built off of trust and are, are built off of these emotions. And so having that basic foundational layer is really important. And so Jeff and I would 
we'll, we'll constantly do these one-on-ones. We'll, we'll, we'll do these things where we don't hold back. We, we tell each other, um, you know, what's at risk or how we're feeling, that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, just so that there's, we're on the same page uh, when it comes to um, where we're going. And then when it comes to like, the division responsibilities, we, we, we set very clear um, lanes of like, you know, Jeff loves engineering. I love design and experience and marketing. And so we sort of meet in the middle of the product. Um, and so knowing that and, and really deferring to each other's expertise, keeping a really low ego, um, these are just fundamental things for a great partnership in general. Yeah, I know it's so critical to have that ability to have an open dialogue, have constructive conversations. Um, and obviously it's, it's worked out quite well in terms of building multiple companies together. Well, let's rewind the clock. So where, do, where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Oh, wow. Uh, I, uh, had a very tumultuous childhood. Um, I born in Taiwan, uh, the, the hot topic these days for various reasons. Um, and, and I immigrated, uh, from there, uh, when I was six, um, pretty much grew up an orphan. And so, um, my family, my, my mom and dad are, they stayed behind Taiwan. I stayed with relatives here, but they pretty much left me alone. And so that was pretty traumatic in a way. And so I escaped uh, through the world of computers. And at the time, it was just like an Apple IIe green screen. Didn't know that this was going to later turn out to like change the entire world. Uh, and, uh, and so I just got lost in it. And just it just turns out that that is something super valuable. That's something that um, it's going to power the innovation in the future. Yeah, because very quickly, you got into the world of entrepreneurship by writing your own programs. So what were some of those early projects? Like I saw, you know, scene review news network. What, what was that? <laughs> yeah. Even before that, it's a uh, back, back when software was a lot easier, you could go to the library, uh, just, you know, uh, take out a couple books. And these are like these like basic books, literally it's called basic. And then you, you just transcribe it into the computer and, it, and you, you, you run it and it just works. And so I was transcribing thousands of pages. I started realizing if I started changing things around, um, I could learn uh, how, how it worked. Um, and then, so that got me into the world of like, okay, I can actually influence something in the world. I can actually influence the program, this thing that's, that's showing. I can actually share it with other people as well because I can see how, how they react. Um, and so, that that went forward into AOL days, and that went forward into the early Web 1.0 with Scene Review. Scene Review, one of my first websites. Gosh, oh, I think it it was ranked 367 uh, on uh, most visited sites. So at the time, it was, it was more traffic than, than Craigslist and Gap. And all it was was we broke the news faster than anyone else before Twitter, just before Facebook. Um, this is when people this is when people were like CNN was updating every like 24 hours or something like that. And so we had this huge network of people out there just getting like the least latest gaming news, the latest app news, the latest sports news, something like that. And people really wanted that. And, and that was that was web 1.0 for you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, I mean, and how old were you at this point in time? Because you're very young oh, man. Scene review, I was 11, 11 wow. or 12. 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 11. I, I, you know what? Probably at 11 years old, I was probably doing the same thing you were as far as 
going to the bookstore, buying the computer books, transcribing the code into my Texas instrument computer and running the program. Yet I never figured out that I could alter it to, to, to make my own program. <laughs> I wasn't smart enough to figure that part out, but so that's amazing. So, okay. So then like, you know, in high school, right? Like you were continuing to build things, right? Yeah. In high school, high school, that's when uh, Napster came out. And uh, this is like crazy clunky software, uh, but it was so useful. People love, they love searching for something, clicking it, and it just, it just worked, just download it, right? And it was magical back then. Um, and, and so I, I knew the founders, uh, Fannie and Parker, Sean Fannie and Sean Parker, um, and we were all old school hackers back then. So before Napster, uh, Fanning was like, he legit wrote some software that like, you know, broke the internet or, or, or hacking computers or, or shut down stuff. And so we were all part of this like small little group of, of misfits uh, that would that would uh, create software to test the limits of a computer, right? And so I remember thinking recently, wow, half the people I knew back then uh, are either in jail or they're really, uh, really made in startups. So it was like a very nice little, little, little fork in the road. Um, well, because of Napster, like I, I got to talk about Napster, right? So, yeah. so this was Sean Fanning, like he's at Northeastern when he's creating all this, which, you know, I don't think Northeastern gets the credit that it's due for fundamentally building the blocks of sharing information online, like without Napster and the, what it did with file sharing, things that we take for granted now that originated then. Yeah, totally, totally. And it was so wild. I remember, I remember uh, in Northeastern when, when he was there, and um, and I was working re- remotely from uh, from my from my my bedroom. Um, he didn't tell anybody, but all of a sudden we we're all watching the, the VMAs on, on MTV, and suddenly he comes out, and then Metallica is out there, and they do this whole skit together. Now it was just a, such a wild, wild time, and that's like. That was like the height of the dot com age, you know, first one point dot com ages. Um, it was so wild. I remember, I remember they had like camera crews following uh, a Metallica as they're as they're literally carting just for show these, these huge boxes of like names because they're like trying to subpoena records and trying to like sue them. It was quite quite a wild time. It was absolutely wild time, but. And so then you worked on some other really cool projects like Dropbox, another file sharing that obviously. So did you know Drew when he was at MIT? I did. I did. Yeah. So um, I, I did a company before that called i2Hub. And so okay. i2Hub was very much like Napster. I had this like file sharing streak. It was very much like Napster, um, but it was over the Internet 2 lines. And so Internet 2 was this, uh, it is this. Um, special network that connects Harvard and, and Stanford and, and all the different colleges together in a super high speed way. And so uh, I created something uh, back then with a, with a few people called i2Hub and it allowed university students at these different colleges to just share. I called it collaborate back then. And uh, <laughs> and so when they when they clicked and they clicked download on something, it wasn't just a normal speed. It was really fast because they utilized the, the university university connection. I um, mean, so that, that blew up a little bit. And then with Dropbox, um, yeah, I knew Drew. Drew uh, and I, we we used to go to this uh, top of the hub when that was a thing, uh, but before they shut down. And we used to have these like Sunday brunches. It was a, us and a whole group of people. Um, we used to get a little fancy and a little dress up on it. And so I, I knew Drew from the first YC. I actually interviewed 
um, at YC with Drew and Arash for Dropbox. Uh, and so no it's way. A, yeah, it's one of those untold stories. So it's um, it was so wild. I was there for the interview. I was there before we stayed at his aunt's place when we, we parked the rental car on the side of Lombard Street and then uh, we got back and all the laptops got stolen and that became part of the story for for the for the interview uh was that we used dropbox to restore our files <laughs> okay so here's another fun fact that i just love this type of stuff so most people probably don't even know that y combinator was in boston or cambridge way back when i don't know how many classes they held if it was just two or three i forget but that first class like reddit was started <laughs> Yes. in boston you know so alexis and like like so were you yeah so i was i was at i was at dinner at um i was at dinner at harvard square i think it was like uno's or Petucci's, and i remember alexis and his other partners there it was and me and drew and, and a few other people and i remember that they were uh the reddit guys they were just like we're screwed and i'm like why it's like <laughs> dig just came out it's crushing the numbers. They're killing it. We don't know what to do. And then now fast forward, you know, like look at where Reddit is and, and look at where Dig is. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So uh, I love that whole error. Okay. So you did go to college. You went to UMass Amherst, but. I went to UMass. Uh, okay. And then you like, <laughs> I think your commencement speech, which, so I don't know if we talk about this now or later, but you dropped out yet years later, you're giving the honorary doctorate like, speech for the commencement. And uh, I think in that speech, you talk about, you know, you, you broke into the network or something like that. Oh, geez. Yes. Yes. Let's dig out all of the skeletons in the closet. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this skeleton is, um, is a UMass skeleton. Yeah. It, it's, I, I didn't really, I enjoyed school for the social aspects of it. I didn't really enjoy the classes. They were too structured, too um, propaganda-ish, uh, not in the formal sense, but they were definitely pushing a perspective. Um, and so I never really did well in environments like that. So I dropped out and I, and, uh, and I, I was pursuing I2Hub and you know, coming from an Asian family and, and their values, they didn't understand that. I was like, I'm going to leave and drop out of this sure thing college and pursue this other thing that's being spoken of on the, on the, on the floors of Congress about I2Hub and shutting it down and all these lawsuits. And I'm going to choose that one. And so, they, so the family didn't really understand that. Um, and uh, 10 years later, I got the redemption uh, because I got a phone call from, from, uh, from the dean. And the dean's like, um, hey, Wayne. I'm like, hi. And he's like, uh, we'd love to give you uh, an honorary PhD and honorary doctorate. Um, would that be okay? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. And then we did a quick meeting and stuff like that. And he also said, like, oh, we also love for you to be the commencement speaker. And since I dropped out, I've never really been to like a college, you know, graduation. So I remember uh, Googling afterwards, like, what is a commencement speaker? And, and, then, and then, but Steve remember, Jobs you know, comes up. Yeah, exactly. And then. Uh, on, on the phone, I remember being like, how many people are going to be on the panel? And he's like, no, no, it's, it's just you. Um, so it, it was fun. And, and commencement speech was only a few weeks away, maybe four weeks away. So we had to write, a, I had to write the whole, whole like speech for it. Good thing that he told me it was going to be, be 6,000 people. Uh, I got onto the stage and I looked out. Yeah, 6,000 students with their parents, with their grandparents, with 
36,000 people out there. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. It was quite wild, but that was, uh, that was one of my proudest moments. I, 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 you know, it was very awesome to have the family members in the audience. Um, and I remember, you know, writing the speech in such a way that the only, um, name in the speech, uh, was my cousin who, uh, who passed away the year before. And so I wanted to uh, honor her in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, you did a great job. I, I mean, anyone listening, definitely Google it or go to YouTube and find it there. Cause it's a great speech. I thought you did a fantastic job. All right. So at what point did you meet Jeff and start to build Crashlytics? Yeah. Um, I was meeting Rob Go from next few ventures. Uh, and, and it turns out that his wife, uh, went to a church that I went to when I was really uh, when I was really young, and he he wanted to meet at like five forty five at at the Beehive, and I'm like, okay, that's a really odd. Who wants to meet at five forty five? Right? It's like five thirty six, five forty five. So it turns out that there was there was a dinner that started very shortly afterwards, um, and we at the bar, and 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 they're setting up the dinner right behind us, and he he, he motions over, and he's like. You know, why don't, why don't you stay? I'm sure I'm sure Victoria wouldn't mind. Uh, and it turns out Victoria uh, was at Flybridge at the time, and, and she was the one that put on this this little dinner. Um, it was an invite-only dinner. I crashed it. Apparently, didn't know that. That to set up a special thing for me. Um, and then and then the worst part of it was, um, well, the best part is Jeff's on my right. Uh, I, I'll see Jeff's on my right. Eric Paley is uh, to my left. And it turns out this whole table became like one of our greatest networks for, for startups. Um, and I asked Jeff, uh, you know, oh, hey, you know, what, do you, what are you up to? What do you do? And he said he, uh, he was running Box's office in, in Boston. I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, developer? He's like, yeah, he, you know, he codes. I was like, what languages do you know? And he's like, he looked at me and he's like, everyone because uh, it was such a silly question for him right and i was like oh wow there's some there's confidence here um but then the worst part of it was uh, i had to go to a, a talk right afterwards and so they did this whole thing and then after the salad course i was like i i have to go <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's such a because that was a whole day of uh dark boston and like court johnson and that, yeah. whole, that was so, such great years in the boston tech scene magical time Magical time. And that's, so that explains how Flybridge was an investor in Crashlytics was uh, Victoria. Yep. Um, okay. So how did you start to think about, okay, here's a product. Cause like Jeff was kind of working on it, right. A little bit as a side project. Yeah. Jeff was doing it as a side project. Um, it turns out that the, the box app crashed quite a bit and he was like, I can't read all these all, all that fast. And so he's trying to figure out a way to make it a little more efficient. So we, we grabbed that random um, coffee uh, at, at Voltage Cafe, just as a follow-up from that, from that dinner. Um, and he showed it to me. And it just struck me as like, you're saying that Apple with all its resources and the whole push on the ecosystem and Google the same and they're pushing on Android, but they don't have a good way of handling this exact problem, the crash reporting problem, the ability to you know, find the exact problem that, that caused the crash. And he's like, no. And so immediately I, I thought of this as like, this is pretty critical in the whole stack of development and both operating systems and both companies aren't creating any real solutions for it. This is going to be a no brainer. This is perfectly horizontal to every single app out there. Um, 
And so I, that was a hypothesis. And so I had to then go out and test it. I had to go out and, and call people. And uh, and Jeff tells the story all the time now, which is like, yeah. And then so so Wayne uh, then calls me three weeks later, saying that he talked to all these different apps, so Weather Channel app, all these different apps, and he found out that like they're willing to pay for it right away. And so that's the beginning of like. Uh, the responsibility and the partnership was um, I, I was in charge of the public facing side of the company, all the brand, all the experience, uh, how people think and feel about the company, about the product, the user experience of that. And then Jeff's on the engineering side, how it works, how it scales, how to make it really robust. Um, and so this is, that was, that was the beginning. But again, another moment in time where you guys were at good product market fit, but developer tools weren't a thing like they are now, right? This was, a whole segment that was underserved. Oh my God. Yeah. The it's, if you're a developer now, you are so lucky. If you're a developer back then you're, we're talking like, you know, that the old stories of like, oh, I have to walk both ways up and down the hill, you know, through snow and want to get there. Equivalent of that for developer tools. There was nothing. Cocoa pods didn't exist. SDKs had to be manually updated. Every time that uh, Facebook SDK uh, got released, that they email all of the developers to manually update uh, all these files and stuff like that. And so all of these things were just broken. Uh, and so we came in there and we're like, you know, this is just really complex, fragmented ecosystem. Can we consolidate it? Can we make it a user experience that's really dead simple, drag and drop, click, it just works. Can we do that? Um, and so we did that. And so we, we focused all our energy, not on just the technical solution, but like, how can we make this really, really simple, even for developers? And that's been our whole um, magic recipe between Jeff and I is we, we marry that. We marry the engineering and we marry the, the delightful experience together in, in these really archaic uh, industries. And it turns out people love products that make them happy. And you raised capital and you started to hit scale very quickly. You were acquired, <laughs> which I remember hearing the news. Twitter is acquiring Crashlytics. And I think, I don't like, I was just like, okay, like I didn't really understand the combination, but obviously it was, you know, something that made a lot of sense. So what, like behind the scenes, like what happened there? Yeah. Yeah. So Twitter was one of our early customers. Uh, I, I call them customers. Uh, they didn't really, no one really paid at, at Cashlytics because we didn't get into that side of it yet. But 13 months, about 13 months after we launched, um, we were acquired by Twitter. Um, and the, the whole acquisition story is like a, a, a whole other podcast. So interesting. Um, but uh, they wanted uh, Crashlytics because Twitter was a mobile company and then, but they were contained by their own app. Whereas Crashlytics allowed them to grow outside their own Twitter app because we grew with the entire ecosystem. And so at that time we had about 300 million devices um, uh, that we were on. And I think now Crashlytics is on 6 billion monthly active devices. And so we're on substantially, I think over 99% of all active devices something like that. So if you have an iPhone or you have an Android phone, Crashlytics is probably in there six to 18 times um, and always helping you make the experience a little bit better. So, well, the acquisition, so I, we're not going to get into the full podcast version, but did like someone from their M&A team reach out to you? Did 
Yeah, the MA team reached out. They 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 lowballed an offer. Uh, we responded and we said, um, yeah, you know, thanks. Really, really um, uh, flattered for, by the offer, but we think we can, you know, build much more value. We think we're worth a little, a little bit more. And so they said, okay. And then they called back and they tripled the offer. Uh, and then and then we said, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, let's 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 talk about it. You know, maybe in person. And then so we flew out there the very next day and went to like you know, Dorsey's conference room at, at Twitter headquarters. Um, it was quite a negotiation. It brought it all the way through to Christmas Day, uh, where on Christmas morning, I, I, I signed the deal. Um, but there was a lot of back and forth between um, us and and uh, uh, Ali Rogani, um, uh, who was the CEO at Pixar, CFO, uh, sorry, CFO at Pixar, CEO at, at Twitter. And then there was uh, back and forth with Dick Costello. There were some emails, there were some competing bids from, from Jack Dorsey's other company, Square. There's a lot of drama in this uh, in this whole thing. Um, numbers being thrown out left and right, bored, we had to do like corral. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was a fun ride and, and one, of my, one of the best moments of my, uh, of my life. And, and what, so once the acquisition happened, like, what did you work on at Twitter? You know, did you stay with the Crashlytics product? Did you work on other things? Yeah, I, I think um, uh, we ultimately ended up running the developer uh, platform at, at Twitter. Um, and so Twitter also wanted to rehabilitate their, the developer uh, platform back then. Um, they had made a lot of promises to developers and they yanked back access. And, and so those trust was missing. Whereas Crashlytics, we were very developer focused. We, we built a lot of trust in the ecosystem. Um, and so, so having us part of Twitter really helped that. And so inside Twitter, we launched um, you know, Android support. Then we launched brand new products. And one of the products that, that we launched was a product called Answers. Um, and uh, within 10 months, Answers became the number one mobile analytics tool. So Crashlytics was number one mobile crash reporting tool. Answers became number one mobile analytics tool. Number two was Google itself. Um, and then so I have a small little theory where that, that, that prompted Google to take a serious look uh, at Twitter. Um, and then they ended up acquiring uh, Crashlytics and the whole team from Twitter. And so now it's part of the uh, standard at, at Google's mobile operating system. Got it. Okay. And then I saw like you were on a patent for Periscope too. <laughs> yes. Uh, I love patents. I love ideation. I love creative stuff. And so um, talking with Twitter legal and then thinking about different ways that we can apply the, the, the Periscope technology or, or, or live video streaming or um, different ways to do ads. A lot of that stuff is now sort of getting realized in the metaverse application of it. Um, but yeah, those are the fun times. I, I love talking future. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously Twitter had an opportunity for, you know, the video, live streaming, TikTok. I mean, just uh, fascinating to look back at some of that stuff too. So at, at what point do you decide, okay, it's time to do something else? After after Twitter, Jeff and I took a couple of years off, um, and we tried retirement. It's really not it's really not that great if you're if you're you know thirty something. There's just not that much to do, um, and so we decided, okay, let's go back and do something. And so we we had to think about something that was even bigger than Crashlytics, and even more impactful, even more of a, of a harder challenge. Um, and we came across uh, this thing um, that ended up 
this new company that we have called Digits. Um, but it was more like, what was the most painful thing? What was the most weird thing about the whole the companies we started before, um, at different or the experience of different companies? And it turns out, what is more boring or archaic than crash reporting? It turns out financial reporting. It turns out there's all you need whole degrees to understand it. Um, they, they write it in sort of like a language that only other financial professionals can read it. So it's their own sub language. And all of this is to inform um, the operators of the company, like how the business is doing, what decisions they can make. But there's a divide there and it's, 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 it's slow, it's lagging. Um, it's also very obtuse, not, not easy to understand. And so we're like, why didn't we understand it? Why couldn't we use this? And so we set out to create something that we call Digits um, and that's our latest company. Where, where's the company at now? I know you've gone through, what are you at? B round of funding was the most recent announcement? Yeah, the most recent announcement was the, the, the Series B. Um, and that's um, Series A was from Benchmark and 72 Amazing Angels. Um, and then Series B uh, was led by GV uh, with participation, participation from Benchmark. Um, and we are completely remote. Um, we are going to do a major launch coming up very soon uh, that showcases um, what we've been working on for the last few years. The early reactions that we've had uh, when we showed the audience has been really, really positive. Uh, they're, I go for the wow reaction. I don't just go for like the, oh, that's nice. I, I, I try to push it to 11. I'm the maximalist guy. And so like, how can I get that reaction from someone? And so we build our product for that. I mean, if you go to the website, digits.com, you'll see it's definitely over-designed. It is definitely over-experienced. It's definitely, there's probably better ways to spend time developing and designing than the stuff that we've done, but we do it because it's who we are. We love to make things really experiential, really easy to understand uh, and really fun. So when are you, go when are you announcing this? Like when's the. We, we're announcing this uh, sometime in March, probably mid to late March. Um, and we have a series of announcements uh, hitting into Q2 as well, small announcements here and there. But this is the year that we're gonna come out, we're gonna be like, here's all the amazing technology and all the products that we built in collaboration with all these great firms and seeing all the problems they have. And uh, we couldn't be more excited. That's awesome. Well, good luck with the launch. Um, Cause it's one of those things where you've been heads down, but you and the team just building, building, building. So I'm sure it's like, okay, finally we get to release to the public what we've been working on. Yes, yes, yes. It's uh, we're all static. We we're all, we just can't wait to. to we're, we're hoping that this brings so much delight and, and ease to the industry. Now, building a company during the pandemic is not an easy thing. So, how, how have you gone about? You know, the collaboration, the productivity. You know, hiring, like all the important elements of building a company. Yeah, we we got super lucky. We um we built the entire company remote only, and so when the pandemic hit. For us, it was business as usual. The, mm -hmm. the thing that wasn't usual was every other company had to then learn how to do remote. And then so all of a sudden we got this huge flood of applicants, huge flood of different you know, dynamics uh, in, in the market. Um, and so we feel very fortunate uh, in the position that we're in uh, that we, we, we didn't foresee the pandemic, but we foresaw remote as a, as a way to do business. What are your plans in terms of hiring for the, the digits team? We, we plan on doubling, um, I think, uh, if we can, by end of year, 
We have about 35 people at the moment. I'm across 13 states. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's competitive out there, but we think we have a, a killer team and we have uh, amazing backers um, and an amazing product. Well, I remember listening to a um, podcast. I think Rob Go interviewed you for the next few podcasts a long time ago. And uh, there was one piece that stood out in my mind from that podcast years ago when I first listened to it. And it was you and Jeff, you had this philosophy of recruiting and having an in-house recruiter is one of your first hires. And that's an absolute critical hire for a company to be successful. So what, what, what is it about having an in-house recruiter that's so important? Oh my God. Yeah. This is the thing that they don't tell you when you, when you start a business, um, as a founder, you can't just go out and just build a product. You have to go out and build a great team that can then build great products. And so if that's true, you as a founder are suddenly in the recruiting game. You have to recruit others into your vision. You have to convince them that this thing that you're saying that's not real can be real and they should help you build it. And so a lot of founders find themselves in that recruiting role, spending a huge amount of time on interviews, screening, posting on Craigslist, whatever it is. Um, and so one hack that we found really early on crash was um, if you bring an internal recruiter, uh, suddenly they do 80, 90% of the filtering process. Jeff and I, we get our time back. We can now think and apply that founder time into other areas. And so we continue to try to find ways that we can um, regain our time and also set uh, parallel um, work streams along. Uh, and, and so that's one of the easiest things uh, for us to do is to try to get an internal recruiter. If you don't see the benefits of it, you will because you will feel the pain of not having a recruiter because you'll be screening all day. And I'm just going to double down on that. And I'm very biased having a background in recruiting and venture fizz is all about helping companies hire great talent. But I get to see a portfolio of companies and talk to lots of companies and how they handle talent acquisition. And the companies that have an in-house recruiter at the early days of the company, like I think of Drift, one of the first, I think five, definitely within the first 10 hires was a recruiter. And like, if you're serious about hiring the best talent, how can you do that without having that competency in-house? It just it's, it's, it just fascinates me when the companies are like, it's all about the talent. We're going to do this with the best people. We've got to execute as a team. Yet they don't have someone in-house that's serious about it. Or they're like, who's going to handle like the candidate experience? How about the office manager? I'm just like, what? Do your investors <laughs> know that this is like how you're running talent acquisition? So anyways, I, uh, I totally agree with that philosophy. It's very clear to me, the companies I work with, the ones that take it very serious and they're winning. So. If you're a high growth company and you need to grow, you have to grow with people. And so you need you need specialists that do that. And like a recruiter is a no-brainer. It should be like one of your very first hires. Okay. Something else that you're very active in is angel investing. So um, how do you go about evaluating companies? Because uh, you've got a pretty extensive portfolio of Gusto, which is a product that I absolutely love. I mean, just talk about disruption of paychecks and ADP. That stuff used to make my make me cry looking at reports from them. Talk about reports. And then Gusto, just, it's, it's like you just plug it in and it works. And you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, DraftKings, which is a great product. Uh, Love Pop, Open Door. There's lots of other companies. So how do you go about you know, evaluating companies to invest in? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I um, I don't do it this, this, the way that most people think. I don't do it the way that like an investment analyst, I don't look at their, you know, cost of uh, user acquisition, their LTVs. I don't do any of that. Um, at the early, early stage, it's really about the people and it's really about um, the network as well. And so all these companies that you just mentioned, they were part of people I already knew or they were one, one degree away. And so they were, they're, they're all like interconnected, interrelated. There's like this like hidden fabric of Silicon Valley. Um, and once you, once you plug in, you get access to like, you just know who the smart people are. You just know where the, where the builders are. You just know where the ones that like uh, loves this area where, where it can solve these type of problems. And so you just back them. And the way that, you know, angel investments work, um, you're not going to win every single one, but the ones that do win will, will more than pay for all the ones that you lost. And so it's uh, it's also a really fun way of, of staying connected into all these different industries. And I think, I don't know if it was you or Jeff that I heard talk about investing on another podcast, but it was talking about founder market fit, which like, I think that's huge too. It's like, why is this founder uniquely qualified to solve this problem right now? Like what's their conviction of why they're solving this? Yeah, founder market fit. I can only say in the negative here. Jeff and I, as we were batting batting about four, four, four digits, we were thinking like, oh, what are some opportunities? And we we struck a few that turned out pretty big by themselves. One of them was um, what turned out to be ghost kitchens. That that, that term was before ghost kitchens, and we, and then we pictured ourselves like do we really want to stay in a really hot kitchen most of the day trying to work out operational efficiencies? And we're like, probably not. That's a negative case of founder market fit, right? And so we, we figured out that like, you know, what are we really good at? Really, really good at really complicated problems, really big data, you know, and, and, and making that really easy to understand and making that in a way that's like aesthetically appealing. Um, and so we look for problems where that, that fits. Um, and so that's, for us, founder market fit is really like selfishly, you know, what are our skills, what are our interests, and how can we pattern match uh, problems so we can apply that to the greatest effect. Now you're, it's, it's hard to go anywhere without hearing about Web3 and crypto and NFTs and all. So, so what's, what's on your radar these days as far as making investments? Like what particular areas of technology are of interest? Yeah, I mean, I think crypto right now is a super wild old west. Um, crypto and, and Web3 is super, super early. Um, speculators will probably make money because they're waiting for the next speculation of some sort. But real use case products that would be better than Web2, I still think maybe a little bit off. Uh, so they're still building the foundational layer. Um, other investments looking at, I just made an investment in this company called Atmo, uh, ATMO.ai. Um, he was the he was the um, chief machine learning person at Silicon Valley Bank, and he decided to apply uh, his knowledge into something that no one's done before uh, with machine learning, and that's weather prediction. And so it turns out governments across the world uh, spend huge amount of capital. I think I heard that like the U.S. spends five million or five billion a day or something on just weather prediction, and so. Uh, he created a machine and his in a software uh, that's twice as good for a fraction of the cost 
And there's like 20 some countries already lined up as customers. And so this is, it's, it's nuts. Um, I love stuff like this out there. I can definitely see this go big. It's, it's one of those things that if it goes big, it's going to become a new standard. It's a new way. And this will be weather prediction by, by this guy. Um, so I, I love, I love, I love projects that are like that. That's like the future of. Yeah, no, that's, that's swinging big for the fence, like going <laughs> yeah. long ball, like, which, like you said, if it does work out, which it sounds that already has some foundational layers that would suggest that it will, this will be a, the new standard that everyone will have to adopt. So, exactly. um, all right. So another thing that you're involved in is producing movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so talk about how did you get involved with that? And then uh, the production company, I think is called wicked magic and Paul English is involved. So I, like, how did you get involved in movie production? Yeah. Uh, I grew up, I grew up, you know, escapism was a way of coping uh, growing up in that traumatic, tumultuous childhood. And so movies was a different way of escaping. And I loved the whole way that stories were told. It's helped me be a better product person, be a better entrepreneur because of uh, me leaning in completely into experiential uh, through movies, through physical experiences. Um, I can do the stuff I do. And so I've always wanted to be part of that. And, and so I'm, I'm here in, in LA at the moment. Um, and it's me realizing that childhood dream of like, can I be a part of the, the magic of, of telling these stories on the big screen? Uh, and so I just got involved with a few movies, um, either as an investor or, or a associate producer or something like that. Um, and it's just fun. It's a fun thing. You, it's a whole different world. The, the, the movie industry and the way they calculate returns it's definitely not the way they calculate returns in the in, the, in Silicon Valley. It, it is just, I, did, I had a whole learning experience. I think my beginner's bruises. Um, but I got really lucky with with some of the some of the films that I was uh, fortunate to be part of. Oh, Chasing Coral won an Emmy. So I mean, wow, right? Like that's I know that's uh, uh, yeah. It's very very lucky. It's like it's like your very first investment becomes like Apple or Google, right? And so in the in the movie world, I, I got very lucky being part of that. Um, and it's a, it's a topic that's very uh, near and dear, right? Climate change. Uh, and so um, I'm just, I was, it was fun being at Sundance, never been to it before. I was there as part of the, of the crew, as part of the, of the whole scene. So again, I got to realize that, that childhood dream. Um, it was fun. I, it's a, if you can be part of it as a hobby uh, and you're in tech, like it's, 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 it's a fun hobby. Yeah, cause like, are you getting scripts? of other movies to produce or like, how does that work? Yeah, they, they, I do get scripts. I don't read them and I tell them straight up. I don't do that. Um, because I don't, I don't have time to do that. I get involved when the, when the project is getting a little bit more developed or there are, there are, uh, there are either teaser trailer, uh, trailers already there, or they're at some concept boards or people signed on. I get ones a little bit more packaged. I just don't have the time to really develop it, uh, myself. Yeah, because that, that's what it made me wonder. I'm like, so how does Wayne manage his time? Like, how do you manage <laughs> your time between all these different initiatives? I don't think about it as time management. I think about it as like importance management. And so uh, whatever is really uh, important uh, for that day or that week, I always constantly readjust and reprioritize. And it changes daily. What I think is important tomorrow is going to be different as I get new information. That allows me to really go for the highest impact things at all times. Um, and yeah, I'll miss some of the lower impact things, but at least I'm going for always the higher impact things. All right. So you've been involved in multiple scenes across the country, East Coast, West Coast. But like, what's the tech scene like in L.A. these days? 
it is growing. Uh, it is very, very different. They have a superpower here that is starting to get realized. And that superpower is celebrity and influence. Um, and before there were two different worlds, right? You had like people in the movies and the Silicon Valley and tech, and that was like very different. And it turns out that the people in the movies are like, oh, I can use my status and my influence and I can, be, I can start my own company or, or be part of a tech company. And I can amplify that. And, and that speed boost with the celebrityism is one of LA's superpowers. They utilize it here to great effect. Um, uh, George Clooney and, and, and the tequila brand, right? Like he made more in that sale than he ever made in all his movies combined, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, just, it's just nuts how um, in that lens, being a movie star is uh is just a, a, a one part of a resume of your entrepreneurship uh in that in that lens right so it's just a nice little uh speed boost what is interesting to see when announcements are made like i think of hydro in boston where it was like kevin hart justin timberlake lizzo um aaron Rodgers' investment firm like it was just all celebrities that you saw noted as far as that new round of capital and yeah they're they can obviously get traction and consumer adoption through their social channels and different other things that they're doing. So it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and their deal flow is great, right? Because everybody wants like a Kevin Hart to be like, Oh, I don't know, to, to tweet about it, to Instagram about it or something like that. And so he gets deal flow naturally through, through his, through his uh, production companies. Um, LA is waking up. LA is going to be a, a force by itself. Uh, they have, they have something that other cities don't and that's uh, that's reach and influence. So outside of work, what do you like to do for fun? I I like to work hard and play hard. And so when I'm at work and I do stuff with digits or investing and things like that, it's like 100% focus. And then um, the quality of the time is really important. So then when I go for fun, it's usually travel and I'm a maximalist. So if I'm traveling, how do I turn it up to 11, right? So a really small, fun way of doing this is like, if you go to, if, if I go to a, a, a restaurant, and I'm like in the maximalist mindset, how can I maximize the experience at this restaurant that I'll probably never come back to? I just start ordering almost everything on the menu. And just so I can taste all the different things that, that like I wanted to taste because I don't know when I'm coming back, right? And so um, what I do for fun is I like to soak in that moment wherever I am and, 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 and really maximize it. Well, Wayne, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great things you've done as far as building companies and angel investing, producing movies. And, you know, I'm excited to see the the continued growth of digits. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.